Now today, as we journey through the season of Lent, towards the darkness of Good Friday and the brilliant celebrations of Easter, uh, Easter Sunday, we're reflecting on the meaning of the cross. Last week, Jen Harvey reflected on the parallels between the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus on the cross. Today, I'm reflecting on what it means that because of the cross, Jesus rules and reigns. Today, we're on a journey of two parts, a reflection on passages throughout the scriptures about the rule and reign of Jesus, followed by some implications for his people, for us. Implications for our minds, for our mouths, and for our motives. Now, here we have a summary of the meaning of the cross that I would have given for many years. Forgiven. What do you make of this? How does it sit with you? We'll come back to that. Take a moment to stare at this. What would you say is the main shape? Now, it's interesting that while I would, I would say white triangle, there is technically no white triangle. Technically, the drawing is three Pac-Men and three mountains. Okay, second illustration. Have a look at this. Does it seem to you that something is not quite right? There must be more to the story, right? Now, my own Christian experience has led me to the place where it's very easy for me to look at the cross and see personal forgiveness. For me, a symbol that I will not be punished for my sins. Like our eye drawn to that white triangle, it's easy for me to focus on this one aspect of the cross at the expense of all the others. Watching that room of wizardry is like when I read the gospel accounts, the uh, accounts of Acts and the epistles, and I look back to the Old Testament, and it seems to me that something isn't right with my summary. Forgiven just doesn't seem to explain it all. There must be more to the story. Consider that Jesus clearly offers forgiveness on many occasions well before any crosses appear. The paralytic lowered from the ceiling, the woman caught in adultery, and the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son, just to name a few. Ah, isn't a change of perspective illuminating? The cross, it seems to me, is very much like an enormous, multifaceted, precious gem. As we gaze upon it from different angles and in different lights, uh, we see so much more than at first glance. Here we have a collection of themes I find throughout Scripture. Forgiven, adopted, commissioned, authority, victory, suffering, the church, restored. Today I want to focus on one aspect of the cross, one facet of this precious gem uh, that's become more clear to me recently. Because of the cross, Jesus rules and reigns. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus has all authority. Let's start with a journey through some illuminating scriptures. We'll look through three main sections of scriptures from the Old Testament, from the words of Jesus himself, and then from the epistles of the Apostle Paul. So first, scriptures part one. Look at this Old Testament prophecy. Now, when I started reading the gospel for myself as a young man, um, it really stood out to me that Jesus often refers to himself as the Son of Man. Dozens of times. How odd. Why didn't he just say, I, or claim the title Messiah, or Savior, or even Son of God? Aren't we all like sons of men? Well, now I know, this comes from Daniel's dream, from Daniel 7. Daniel's dream begins with four fantastical beasts, and after them the Ancient of Days, Yahweh, appears on a flaming wheeled throne. Daniel turns to a mysterious figure in his dream, who then proceeds to interpret everything. The beasts represent four kingdoms, and the key here is 
that the Son of Man comes on the clouds, not to earth, but to heaven, to the throne of Yahweh. Let me read it to you. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now there's understandably some debate about whether that fourth beast has already fallen, in which case um, this vision is a vision of past events, or whether that fourth beast is yet to come. Either way, Jesus has given all authority, glory, and sovereign power, and Jesus, while on earth, clearly saw himself as this figure in Daniel 7. And it doesn't stop there. Uh, the mysterious interpreter carries on. Jesus isn't ruling alone. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. Still, there's that uncertainty about past or future events. That could mean that Jesus is maybe not yet ruling. So let's see where else we can find some reflections on this theme. Okay, scriptures part two, the words of Jesus himself in the Gospels. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Has been given. It's happened already. And then what are the implications of Jesus' authority in heaven and on earth? Therefore, I will now sweep across the kingdoms of the earth, and the nations will fall to their knees before my risen glory. That actually sounds pretty good. But no. He says, therefore go. You do it. But I am with you, always, to the end. Now, if you pay attention, you'll notice a very similar claim made by a very different sort of character earlier in the plot. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Now, either the devil was spinning lies, which he's been known to do, or he was twisting a valid truth. The devil did have some form of authority over the kingdoms of the world. But it seems that Jesus thinks that there's been a shift in the power structures after the cross. Now you see these same two themes in John. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Overcome meaning defeated, conquered, like military language. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So the implications, I'm sending you. I am sending you. Uh, scriptures part three, Paul's letters to the Ephesians. The po that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, 
but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Look, he exerted, seated him. This has already happened. Now, in the past, I somehow managed to read passages like this, and there are more, through my own filter. I saw that Jesus will have all authority, sovereignty, rule, and power in the future. And then I somehow moved on. Upon reflection, I think I managed this because of what my subconscious ideas of sovereign authority look like. I expect someone with sovereign authority to enforce their will upon others. When I look around our world, I don't see Jesus forcing us all to bend the knee, pushing forward his kingdom with force and violence against those who don't agree. Jesus is a different kind of king with a different kind of authority. Jesus showed us how he runs his kingdom when he was here. He didn't coerce. He didn't use force. He didn't use violence. No, he healed the sick. He dined with the outcasts. He invited, hosted, and served. He washed his students' feet. He chose a horrific, shameful Roman execution for the sake of us. Now, I think N.T. Wright explains this dissonance really well. If Jesus rules and reigns, why do we see so much evil and frustration in the world around us? How is it that Jesus rules and reigns with all this evil? Uh, this is from his Matthew for Everybody commentary regarding the final lines of the Gospel of Matthew, the Great Commission. People get very puzzled by the claim that Jesus is already ruling the world until they see what is in fact being said. The claim is not that the world is already completely as Jesus intends it to be. The claim is that he is working to take it from where it was, under the rule not only of death but of corruption, greed, and every kind of wickedness, and to bring it by slow means and quick under the rule of his life-giving love. And how is he doing this? Here is the shock through us, his followers. The project only goes forward insofar as Jesus' agents, the people he's commissioned, are taking it forward. Many today mock this claim just as much as they mocked the resurrection itself. The church in its various forms has got so much wrong, has made so many mistakes, has let its Lord down so often that many people, including many who love Jesus for themselves, despair of it and suppose that nothing will ever change until Jesus himself returns to sort it all out. But that isn't Matthew's belief, and it doesn't fit with what we know of Jesus' commissioning of his followers in Luke, Acts, and John. It doesn't fit with Paul's vision of his task. They all agree with Matthew. Those who believe in Jesus, who are witnesses to his resurrection, are given the responsibility to go and make real in the world the authority which Jesus already has. This, after all, is part of the answer to the prayer that God's kingdom will come on earth as in heaven. If we pray that prayer, we shouldn't be surprised if we're called upon to help bring about God's answer to it. N.T. Wright. Jesus does indeed have sovereign authority, glory, and power right now. But he invites us to submit to him, to follow him under his rule and reign. When we individually choose to trust in Jesus and follow him, evil and sin lose their power over us. He empowers us with his Holy Spirit. And we, under his authority and power, uh, to go in self-sacrificial love and start making his will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And we invite and train others to join us. It's so good. Now, in my own journey to understanding the cross, I used to think that I was merely forgiven individually. 
It's like I had a ticket stub. An individual club membership for a cruise that was departing sometime in the future. And if that's all the cross offers, then I'm just killing time now until the end of the world. But now I see that I've been forgiven because I've been adopted as part of Jesus' royal family under his authority and his power to enact and expand God's kingdom now, not just as an individual, but as the church. Now the cross is certainly a call to fall on our knees and repent and marvel at what Jesus has done for us. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us, from Ephesians 1. But it also, perhaps more so, is a call to action. Jesus has taken his throne, and we, his people, are now released into the gates, out the gates, into the world. Now, listing the main themes of the cross uh, to personal forgiveness is like being, sorry, limiting the main theme of the cross to personal forgiveness is like being accepted onto MasterChef, an amazing show, framing the acceptance letter and then going back to normal life. The main thrust is ahead. There are things to do, something to become. Jesus promises to be with us, to empower us, to, to counsel us, to speak to us, to guide us, but he didn't promise to do all the stuff for us. We are meant to do the stuff. His authority empowers us to act. We are not passive spectators to the Jesus show. We are in the show. We are like the actors on the stage, uh, the soldiers in the fight, the athletes in the competition. So the cross, for us, is not the finish line, it's the starting line. So in summary, um, my one-dimensional view of the cross is, as mainly personal forgiveness, was um, individual, passive, focused on a comfort from heaven at some point in the future. Now, a more robust view of the cross is also corporate, active, and focused on our role in the kingdom of heaven now, onwards to eternity. I was holding on to a flimsy and anemic version of the cross. So my challenge is to consider this. Is your image of the cross one that is revealed through the breadth of scripture or through a narrow cultural filter? This is a non-judgmental question. If you're like me, uh, it's not that I rejected a fuller version of the cross. I just simply hadn't seen it yet. This cross, this gem, uh, is compelling, exciting, full of life. We are born under the authority of evil, and now we're reborn under the authority of Jesus. We can change allegiances from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We can be raised up as royal children in his kingdom, doing the king's work instead of the work of evil. So, if Jesus truly rules and reigns because of what he's accomplished on the cross, what are some implications for us? We are called to action. But what action? I would suggest an entire way of life under the way of Jesus. That's huge. Concern for the poor, sick, oppressed, marginalized, imprisoned, work for justice and peace, personal holiness and righteousness in our thoughts and our words and our actions, stewardship of creation, evangelism and discipleship, integrity and quality of our work and vocation. Okay, there's a lot there. But based on what I've been reading, uh, I've been praying and contemplating, God is particularly at work in me in three areas, and I want to share that with you now. In the mind, in the mouth, and in our motives. So I invite you to ask Jesus if there's one thing you could take away today and possibly something you could do differently 
because Jesus reigns. So let's start with our minds. This message, Jesus rules and reigns, is not a message we will hear from the secular world as we go about our day. In this moment, I hope the evidence rings true that Jesus has achieved victory over sin and death, over the evil powers and the principalities, and that he's lifted up his followers, us, with him, into a place of authority and power. In this moment, I also hope that it seems and feels true as we ponder these mysterious, mysterious truths together. There is power in the scriptures and in the gathered church. We can feel it. While your mind may still hold on to this reality later today or tomorrow afternoon, your emotions and your imagination will almost certainly have other things to say. So many other things will quickly feel like they're on the sovereign throne of our life. Okay, picture your typical Monday. If you're in any way like me, you can relate to the experience that some of these start to feel like they have authority in your life. Maintaining comfort and security for me and my loved ones. Collecting and hoarding a little bit more wealth. My sexual desires. Some form of academic, occupational, or, or professional, personal prestige. The approval of my peers. Acceptance into the cool social circles. Or image management in person or online. The list goes on. But there's a way forward. In the words of C.S. Lewis. Now, faith, in the sense in which I am using the word, is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. The first step is to recognize the fact that your moods change. The next is to make sure that if you have once accepted Christianity, then some of its main doctrines shall be deliberately held before your mind for some time every day. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. So, to combat the assault on our emotions and our imaginations, we need to regularly fill our minds with truth so that our emotions and imaginations will follow. Consider the inputs, the influences, and the messages that feed your mind on a given day. A daily dose of news, social media, advertisements, popular music, and the streaming service of my choice are not establishing the rule and reign of Jesus as a reality in my mind. I need a regular dose of paradigm shift that comes from the cross. So I want to share three practices that have been powerful and effective in me at continuing to form my mind in a life-giving way so that it's set upon Jesus and the meaning of the cross. It's trusted and true kind of stuff. Basic. For me, recently, daily reading of key scriptures has been really powerful, as has reading and studying the Gospels, as had praying the Lord's Prayer. They're so good, in fact, they're all number one. <laughs> okay, let's start with the first number one, daily reading key scriptures. So, for example, I've stuck my pencil in my Bible at Daniel 7, and I've been reading it every morning for a few weeks now, and it's shaping how I see the world. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, I look around my home, the school where I work, the streets I drive, and I think, more often, this is the kingdom of Jesus. He has sovereign power here. The same would be true for any of those passages. They're all main themes on Jesus' authority. God's word does not return void. So I invite you to choose to read one of these short passages every morning for a season. 
see how the reality of Jesus' rule and reign starts to become part of how you see your world. Section two, quite simply, um, to read the Gospels. Dallas Willard, in his book on Discipleship, the Divine Conspiracy, makes a good point about discipleship. If we're serious about following Jesus and becoming more like him, um, wouldn't it be natural to immerse ourselves in his life? He suggests regularly reading through each gospel from start to finish, ideally within a few days or weeks. Now, I've taken him up on this challenge, and I've been reading through the gospels at various paces for many months now. And Jesus is getting into my bones. Jesus' stories, his teachings, his behavior, his perspectives are more and more shaping how I think, and it's just like living water, like he said. For some reason, this seems harder than it really is. Take the book of Mark. 16 chapters, less than 20 pages in my Bible. 20 pages, it's like a few chapters of Harry Potter. But the payoff is a mind that's more easily remembering how Jesus wants to run this place. So, if it's been a while since you read the gospel from start to finish, any four, I really invite you to consider giving it a go between now and Easter. Third one, pray the Lord's Prayer. Two weeks ago, Sam discussed the formational power of praying set prayers. I have also been using various set prayers as part of my daily prayer time in the mornings for a few years now. And the most impactful of the lot, not surprisingly, has been the Lord's Prayer. All the theology we're exploring today can be summed up in your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. So consider praying this every day with thoughtfulness and sincerity and see what, God's does, see what God does to you. Now, if you're on the set prayer wagon between now and Easter, you're already praying this once a day. But if you weren't quite ready for that set prayer challenge that Sam set two weeks ago, I invite you to consider a mini version. Pray the Lord's Prayer every morning, just until Easter. Pay special attention to your kingdom come. There is a spiritual battle going on for our minds. Satan is the father of lies, and he's very skilled at distorting our view of reality to make us less effective in God's kingdom. By keeping the scriptures before our minds and praying truth, we can form a more permanent and robust view of Jesus and the cross in our minds and in our hearts. God's word is living and active. We just need to expose ourselves to it more powerfully than to the voices of the world. So if Jesus really rules and reigns, we will fill our minds with his reality. Let's pray together. I invite you to pray with me. A prayer for truth, a right view of reality. Heavenly Father, seed your yeast in the dough of my heart and mine this day. May the fuel and heat of your presence leaven the dough and push out the dross. May my complex view of reality contain fewer threads of deceit and more silver threads of heavenly truth. As I soak in your word and bathe in your presence, you shift the workings of my mind and the contemplations of my heart. Give me eyes to see and ears to hear, O Lord. After our minds, now comes my challenge for our mouths. If Jesus really rules and reigns, and bowing to his loving lordship frees us from sin and death, adopts us as children of God, and empowers us under his authority and power to bring about the kingdom of heaven as his people, the church, that's really, really good news. Um, I've often struggled to muster the boldness and the courage to talk about Jesus candidly with those around me who don't really know him. Uh, I think I worry that I will offend or make others uncomfortable or come across as arrogant or judgmental. And I think I've also internalized the cultural message that actually says it's wrong to believe in any form of universal claim to truth. 
or perspective on reality. But the more I read the Gospels, the more I see how Jesus so brilliantly and relationally talks about the kingdom of God with people from all walks of life. He speaks out of incredibly deep compassion for the lost and out of an incredibly strong conviction that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He brings good news and he speaks with authority. And I want to speak like that. So I've set for myself a challenge of trying to talk about Jesus at least once a day with somebody, anybody, even if it's my children or my wife. And this has been really powerful for me. Um, the whole point has been to normalize talking about Jesus with compassion, grace, relevance, kindness. And I'm making slow progress. Um, it is normalizing for me talking about Jesus, and it's also shaping my thinking to be looking for opportunities to talk about him. So I credit that to Jen Harvey. Uh, in her sermon a few months ago, she gave this suggestion that try some sentence starters like, that reminds me of something Jesus said. That reminds me of something Jesus did. So I invite you to consider asking Jesus to show you who is it that he's put on your mind, on your heart. Ask him how you can sprinkle some of those conversation starters into your conversations with those close to you. Because if Jesus really rules and reigns, we will speak about him. Again, I invite you to pray with me, a prayer for partnership this day. Heavenly Father, show me what you are already doing and saying for the people before me today. Show me how I can contribute to your work with each one, even just one. Show me how I can speak of what you said and did, Jesus, what you said and what you did. Give your servant boldness. Give me your compassion for the lost. Right, so we've got our minds, our mouths, and lastly, our motives. Simply put, my natural motives for most of what I do is to benefit myself. I naturally seek my comfort, my benefit, and ways to make myself feel good. Even acts of service can fit this rubric because it makes me feel good to do good. It's a bit twisted, and I'm sure you can relate. But in the kingdom of God, where Jesus rules and reigns, he's given us countless images of the exact opposite, self-sacrificial love. Touching the lepers, eating with social outcasts, washing his disciples' feet, submitting to death on a cross, and saying, Father, forgive them. So, under Jesus' reign, we have a king who esteems others, honors others, serves others, embraces self-sacrifice. So how do I get from my current selfish, self-seeking, self-indulging mode of operation to that, under his rule and reign? Well, C.S. Lewis says it really well. But love, in the Christian sense, does not mean an emotion. It is a state, not of the feelings, but of the will. It would be quite wrong to think that the way to become charitable, loving, is to sit trying to manufacture affectionate feelings. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. And as soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. Jesus doesn't do it this hard way just to be different and mysterious. The way of self-sacrificial love is the only way that leads to fullness of life. So I invite you to consider asking Jesus to show you who you can choose to love, maybe somebody hard to love, and ask him to help you do that. If Jesus really rules and reigns, we will pursue his motives. But please pray with me one last time. A prayer for new motives. Heavenly Father, bless me with meekness and humility. 
Forbid that I would think more highly of myself than I ought. Show me how I can esteem, honor, and serve those before me this day. Forbid it that I should give in to the deceit of self-indulgence. Teach me instead to truly delight in self-sacrificial love. Jesus, as you've modeled for me with your life, your death, and your resurrection. So, as we ponder the meaning of the cross, we wholeheartedly pray, of course, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's amazing good news. But we don't stop there. We also pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as in heaven. Every time you pray for God to act in any way for his kingdom, his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth, consider that he often wants to do that work through his people, which might be you or me. Oh Jesus, form us, your church, into a bride that reflects your love to the world. Jesus, Lord and loving ruler of all, remind us that you are our Lord, friend, counselor, and savior who has all authority and that you have lifted us up under your authority and under you we have incomparably great power and authority both now in this moment but also as we leave this place. Tomorrow, next month, next year, and forever. If God is for us, who can be against us? Jesus, show us how you want to use each one in this moment today, in the week to come, in the months to come. Show us how you want us to nudge the earth closer to your life-giving love. Thank you, Jesus, for partnering with us here on earth. Amen. <laughs>